The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Today is the first of a two-part conversation with returning guest, Teasel Muir Harmony, curator of the Apollo program at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Teasel is giving a public program here at the Museum of Flight on June 3rd about the political history of the Apollo moon landings. And she was gracious enough to sit down with me ahead of the program for a one-on-one Q&A about some of the stories from her book, Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. The conversation turned out to be quite lengthy, so I split it into two episodes. In this first part, Tiesel sets the stage and talks about the wider global context within which the U.S. space program operated. We discussed the American politicians who encouraged and shaped panic around Sputnik and the space race, the importance of symbolism and a lot of the images and actions the astronauts took both on the moon and here on Earth, and how racism was a national security risk, which the space program was partially designed to counter, at least in appearance. The launch of Sputnik, a lot of people interpreted it as um, a sign of Soviet military capability, and it and it really didn't signal that as much as that the Soviet Union did have heavy heavy uh, lift capacity, but um, it, it didn't mean that they were going to be able to to reach the United States with with missiles anytime soon. Um, but a lot of the the concern actually was was encouraged, I guess you could say, by um, American politicians who saw some advantage in there being a, a shock and a strong reaction to Sputnik. And in particular, I'm talking about Lyndon Johnson. And so uh, what happened with the launch of Sputnik, many people within, especially within the scientific community, were aware that that was going to happen. There were announcements made that both the United States and the Soviet Union had satellite programs, that they were going to la- launch satellites as part of this International Geophysical Year, or IGY. So this was something people were aware was going to happen. The exact timing was less uh, sure, but it was it was um, there was wide awareness. But um, immediately, Lyndon Johnson saw this as an important opportunity. And um, although President Eisenhower tried to encourage people that it didn't suggest that the United States wasn't um, scientifically and technologically competitive, and it didn't have these larger implications. Um, people like Lyndon Johnson compared it to Pearl Harbor and had lots of press interviews and and suggested there needed to be an immediate congressional investigation and um, really riled riled things up. And I, I also think it's important that the press covered it quite a lot too. There was very limited information about Sputnik, which then can lead to a lot of speculation. And so at that moment, at very, at very, very initially, there wasn't a strong reaction, and then, and then it exploded. And there are all these factors that contributed to that. Uh, but it, in my book, I talk about how it was, it was made into the Sputnik moment that people actually had a hand in, 
and how it turned out, how it how it became uh, a catalyst for so many things, especially when it comes to investment in science education at the time, um, the creation of uh, scientific advisors for the president, um, things like that, additional investment in the military. All those things are tied to proactive choices that people made at the time in relationship to Sputnik. Did it help that uh, this was happening in the fall and election season was was really around the corner? The timing was very important for Sputnik, um, and especially in relationship to American civil rights tension. So you have lots of civil rights clashes, and then uh, a month earlier, it was uh, you have Little Rock, where students were trying to attend school uh, after the Brown versus the Board of Education ruling on the desegregation of schools. Um, They were blocked. And so this was just a month before Sputnik. And what's important part of this story is for the the Democratic Party, the Southern Democrats were were not progressive. I guess that's like a euphemistic way to talk about this. They were not progressive when it came to civil rights. They proactively blocked civil rights. This was Uh, pre-Southern strategy and and a number. yeah, Yeah. So um, so this was something that was said was tearing the Democratic Party apart, civil rights. And so uh, people like Lyndon Johnson, a leader of the, the Democratic Party, had to look for other things to ensure real, um, the election of Democratic politicians the following fall. He and others thought that space would be a great opportunity for that. There's going to be a great opportunity for critiquing the Eisenhower administration critiquing Republicans in general. Uh, Eisenhower was fiscally conservative. He um, did not want to invest heavily in military buildup. And he was criticized by Democrats, especially for the missile gap and not investing enough in American security. And and Sputnik and the space race was a way to criticize his administration, to give a leg up to the Democrats especially in relationship to their problems when it came to civil rights. So sort of a complicated story, but all these things sort uh, affect each other and are sort of woven together and um, important to the outcome of that moment. We talk about racism and discrimination in the 50s and the 60s uh, and its impact in the U.S., but, but how did the wider world perceive what was going on uh, in the U.S. during that time, especially related to civil rights, uh, and and how did that impact the U.S.'s ability to achieve its diplomatic objectives uh, to oppose the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's a great question. And so the the broader global context is so essential to this story as well, and um, essential to the story of American civil rights. And um, this is a moment where you have the end of many colonial empires, the emergence of newly independent nations. Uh, many of these n- new nations are in Africa. A lot of decisions are being made about um, political systems and structure and uh, the future of these societies. And especially in places like Africa, you know, people are reading newspaper coverage of civil rights struggles in the United States and thinking that the United States was not the model society that it was purporting to be. And so within the Cold War competition with the with the Soviet Union, the United States was trying to project itself abroad as a model country, try to convince other countries to pursue liberal democracy. Yet there was all this coverage of, of civil rights struggles. And that was tarnishing the reputation of the United States abroad and also causing people to question whether or not uh, liberal democracy, whether or not the United States was was something to be inspired by, follow, uh, align with. So news coverage of American civil rights struggles were followed around the world. And um, 
within Washington, they were seen as a potential threat to the United States' position in the world. So both in terms of the United States' alignment with other countries, as well as um, newly independent nations deciding whether or not to pursue liberal democracy versus socialism or communism. And so it was seen as a major threat at that time to the U.S.'s position in the world. One of the important parts of that global context is the Eisenhower administration and later the Kennedy administration were really pressured to be more proactive when it came to civil rights because of uh, the U.S.'s larger global interests. And so especially Eisenhower, because of this larger Cold War context, he was he was motivated to take more proactive steps towards civil rights. And there's um, a fantastic book about this called Cold War Civil Rights by Mary Dudziak. I highly recommend it. But it's all about that interplay between domestic um, civil rights and international relations and, and how those two things or how international relations really affected American civil rights. Yes, yeah, as we're talking about Africa, one of the things uh, you were a guest a couple years ago on the uh, podcast here, and we talked about the Apollo 11 Around the World Tour, which was conducted in, in the Boeing VC-137B that we have here on display. It's in Air Force One colors. And, and you talked about how during that tour, Africa was not on the agenda, really, with the exception of Kinshasa. So, so what changed in those intervening years that Africa was perhaps no longer a priority, and instead that tour was sent to other places around the world. I would say over the 1960s, there was a sort of a complex relationship between the United States and and African countries and um, the continent more generally. Um, With the Apollo 11 astronauts diplomatic tour in 1969, there was actually not going to be a single stop in Africa because it was was not seen as a priority region for that type of uh, diplomatic program. But Frank Borman, who was the commander of Apollo 8, he was advising Nixon at the time and he said, we have to get a stop in Africa added to the list. And that's why they went to Kinshasa. So that was even a later on addition. There were some limitations on that scheduling because they, they wanted to get the astronauts back to the U.S. in time for the next mission, things like that. But still, but still, I will say, though, throughout the 60s, there was a priority given to uh, these kinds of diplomatic events. So um, astronaut tours, scientist tours, as well as exhibits and things like that. Within um, Africa, there were two really important tracking stations in Africa. So in in Nigeria, there were lots of events um, that were focused there and also in Madagascar. But there was an expectation that the United States government programming in Africa was had to be treated differently than it did in, in places like Europe. They certainly seemed motivated by, by frankly, what we would call racist ideology, like the 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 ways they approached it and separated uh, European approaches from the third world approaches and things like that. Yeah, there are some very problematic threads and language that um, surround U.S. programming in Africa at this period. And um, there was an idea that for public diplomacy in Africa, they had to do more work, that people would be less able to understand the space program. And so whereas in Europe, they could um, just send them press press releases out and, and do sort of minimal pr- promotion and interpretation, then Africa required more interpretation. So there was a lot of 
problematic approaches to this programming in Africa. Um, they one thing that was important about um, the efforts targeting Africa was that they they trained African American lecturers to learn about the space program um, and then sent them to Africa and. Um, and they were supposed to both represent the space program and get people excited about American space exploration, but then also demonstrate that there were opportunities for African-Americans. And so it was also a way to combat the, the impressions of American civil rights struggles. And these lecturers t- tended to be really popular. Um, they would draw large audiences, um, meet with local leaders. And so they were seen as an important part of extending American influence uh, in African countries at that time. You mentioned the, the communication stations earlier, and, and they seem like a good example <laughs> to illustrate the constant one-upsmanship between the U.S. and the Soviet programs and, and how they tried one person put a narrative out there then someone else tried to put a counter narrative to kind of play chess can can you go into detail a little bit about that there was a lot of competition not just in the you know the missions that were launched uh, but also in how they were presented and and the competing information programs and so um, one one way this played out was in the early 1960s, the Soviet Union sent cosmonauts around the world um, to, to promote the space program and to meet with people. And the U.S. interpreted this as too clearly, you know, propagandistic, propagandistic. Um, they thought that it was just too transparent. And instead, it would be important to send the spacecraft abroad and focus on science and engineering and that um, programming that had scientific and engineering information wouldn't be interpreted as propaganda as much as the Soviet Union's um, cosmonaut tours. This policy changed over time, but um, that was the approach early on. And um, the U.S. really leaned heavily into focusing on themes of of science and technology and um, shared information, diagrams, and had the spacecraft right there so people could see it in person, whereas the Soviet Union was not sharing information about its spacecraft. There was very limited information. It was really focused on on the person. Um, instead, things shifted over time. In um, By the mid-1960s, the United States started sending astronauts abroad, but they emphasized that these astronauts were scientific representatives. Um, and so that was seen as an important way. This association with science was seen as a very important way to um, make the astronauts seem less less political um, and uh, more objective. They also were involved in um, blocking each other's programming and sharing the sort of negative information. One example in in Madagascar, for instance, um, the Soviet Union had a sort of anti-American propaganda suggesting that this um, t- this tracking station had military connotations and things like that. So that was also going on at the same time. So you you hit on something that that seems pretty important of of this difference in how the U.S. and the Soviet Union presented their space programs, and in that the U.S. it seems focused on kind of community sharing, openness, and, and the USSR, you said earlier, people didn't really know what Sputnik was, <laughs> whereas the U.S. televised a lot of their launches. Can you talk just a little bit more about that that difference? Sure. So there was this expectation within the United States that being very open with the space program, including inviting journalists to cover launches, disseminating this information very broadly, was a way to demonstrate the values of an open democratic society. So 
um, their approach to information dissemination was supposed to reflect American society, American values. Um, there was some some question about whether or not that was a good idea, especially when you had um, failures at the beginning. But ultimately, <laughs> it was seen as, you know, this is a demonstration. This will make the world realize that they can trust us. And that's going to be very important to American foreign relations. An important part of this story is also that when the United States decided to establish NASA. They decided to separate civilian and military space, which made it much easier to disseminate this information. And so uh, the United States was disseminating information about their civilian space agency and, and not so much about their military space endeavors. Um, whereas in the Soviet Union, um, there wasn't this separation. And so it was much more difficult to disseminate information about spacecraft, for instance. There are a variety of reasons, but um, that separation of civilian, civilian and military is was essential to the United States' ability to be really open with its civilian spaceflight program. There are persistent rumors that Yuri Gagarin was possibly not the first person to be put on top of a rocket and launched, and that there may have been any number of secret launches that failed, and we only found out about the one that uh, is true. Can can you address those? I've heard this very recently, even. Can, can you address those rumors and what the historical record shows on this at this point? As far as I know, Yuri Gagarin was the first human to travel in space, and both the Soviet Union and the United States had sent animals into space and and had all these test missions and um, but Gagarin was the first one uh, to be sent in space and it's worth noting that with his mission um, it wasn't announced that it was when ahead of time that he was being launched um, they they waited to make the announcement until they were pretty sure that things were going well um, there was still the chance that there could have been uh, a failure because that information was was spread while he was still in orbit um, but as far as I know, he was the first uh, space traveler. I'm curious about this, how it changes the political sphere and, and scene around space. You know, NASA is a government agency, so it's subject to public scrutiny and, and the public record. But as uh, private companies who are not beholden to public scrutiny are, are kind of becoming this dominant force. Uh, and in fact, with competition and trade secrets, they might be incentivized not to share. So, so how does this change the political scene around space and what does it mean for someone in 50 years writing a political history around the race to Mars, for example? How is it going to be different? The, the, the current moment um, in human spaceflight is, is fascinating, especially because of this evolving relationship between national space programs and um, contractors. And I think when I speak about this current moment, I always think it's important to emphasize that um, NASA and industry have always worked very closely together. And during the Apollo program, over 90% of the people working on Apollo were working in industry. So contractors and subcontractors, the vast majority of them. Um, and and so that relationship has always been essential. It's it's not just something that's brand new. And what's new is the sort of the details of the relationship, what's particular about the relationship. And and one of the, the differences is private space is now taking res responsibility for more aspects of a mission. So if you see, if you look at the resupply missions, for instance, to the International Space Station and um, SpaceX is, is responsible for um, the rocket and the spacecraft and, and the spacesuits and all these different elements. And 
and also gets recognized for that accomplishment. Now, during the Apollo program, the contractors did get recognition for all the work that they were doing, but it was uh, was the NASA logo or the United States flag um, that people associated most with the mission. And um, it was giving a lot of credit to the country uh, for those accomplishments. And I think that um, as NASA's relationship with industry evolves, um, the branding or the the, cr- the credit of these accomplishments is, is likely to evolve as well. And it'll be interesting to see then what that does, how that affects um, the motivations for national space flight programs. So we might be driven less now by questions of, of prestige and national branding, which isn't necessarily a problem, but it is an evolution. I, I think also for future space exploration, you see uh, greater and greater interest in um, collaboration, cooperation, both um, between national space programs and industry, and then also among national space programs. And so uh, missions to Mars, for instance, are going to be extraordinarily complicated, extraordinarily expensive, and will benefit from, I think, a combined effort when it comes to funding and expertise coordination. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but it is likely that it'll have a much more collaborative tone uh, than than you had with something like Apollo, even though they emphasize that it was for all mankind or for all humankind. Um, it was very clearly a national space program. It's something that uh, we talked about on the podcast with with Jeff Nunn, our curator for space history here, because uh, he's been involved in it's It's not just who's doing it. It's how how information is being shared now. Uh, when you were writing this book, you had pages and pages and pages of printed materials to go through, I'm sure. But as business is being conducted digitally, it's it's going to make it a very it, a different world for a researcher in 50 years to go back and do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I hope that all these corporations are keeping records and that they're going to ha- give access to historians uh, to these things. And that's, that's one, you know, huge benefit within the United States. The, the federal records are, it's incredible for historians. There's the, the archives have so much material that historians have access to, to tell these stories. And um, business history can sometimes be more difficult because, because industry doesn't necessarily always you know, welcome historians in to, to look at their material. I hope that changes and I always make a, you know, a plea or request <laughs> for future historians. <laughs> yeah, because to tell this history, you need the documents. And, and we have these documents about the Apollo program. One will see in the future, you know, what, what historians have access to. And I hope we have access to all this material. Me too. And, and not just here, just across the board. I think that, that that's important, important access to have. Uh, but you, you mentioned that one of the catchphrases of Apollo, this for all mankind uh, concept, uh, really, really this idea of it being a world achievement, a collective effort. And can you talk a little bit about how this phrase came about and, and what it meant? Sure. So the the origins of this for all mankind, I've looked into it a bit. It's, it's difficult to pinpoint, but um, it appears in um, the you know, original documents and the establishment of NASA, and it, it becomes increasingly used throughout the 1960s as it becomes clear that 
whenever the United States presents its space program abroad and emphasizes inclusivity and emphasizes the global community and de-emphasizes, this is a national program, this is a demonstration of American capability, um, it is received more warmly. It actually advances U.S. political interests more. And so um, throughout the 1960s, uh, American public diplomats uh, are noticing this. They're picking up on this when they um, are at space exhibits and when they're interacting with people on the ground in different countries around the world. And then they report this back uh, to Washington, to the State Department, to the U.S. Information Agency, to NASA. And uh, um, by the first lunar landing, it, they're very, very clear that it's important to frame the first lunar landing, so to present it to the world in a very particular way. And they are very careful about the language that they use to do that. Um, and they want to symbolize this is for all humankind. Um, this isn't just an American achievement. This is really something much greater, much broader. And and that's both, I, you know, I think it's complicated because I think many people did have that sentiment authentically had that sentiment, but I think they also uh, realized um, the political advantage of framing the moon landing that way as well. So it's it's both these things working together. Um, and so they were very, very explicit in um, the in press releases, in, in the exhibits that they produced, in the films they produced, television series, uh, radio broadcasts, all sorts of programming in the lectures to present the moon landing and the Apollo program more generally as something that was for all humankind. It, it, it's interesting because in the U.S., right, in, in our popular consciousness internally, we have this concept of the, the rugged individual, uh, which which is in contrast to the Soviet system, kind of this, this collective. So I, I just I find it interesting that to counter the Soviet threat, uh, in a way, the U.S. presented itself in a way that prized group work over individual work. I don't know if there's a question in there or if it's just an observation, <laughs> but I just I find it just an interesting an interesting approach considering some of the wider context and, and cultural imagination we have about ourselves. I think it's a good point. It's also worth noting that the, the way that um, the Apollo program was often spoken about within the U.S. government circles was as something that was, it was, a U.S.-led global accomplishment. So America was still part of it, and it was important that the U.S. was the global leader and sort of setting the terms. Um, and, and part of this was linked to this um, sort of hope for the U.S.'s position within the world more broadly, that the U.S. was you know, the leader of the free world, the leader of the world in general. And so um, Apollo um, and the way that they talked about Apollo really reflected this larger positioning of um, U.S.-led global endeavor. It is interesting also because a lot of the programming that wasn't necessarily focused on international relations also emphasized how many people were working on the Apollo program. That was a big part of it. It was the whole country coming together, hundreds of thousands of people across the country contributed to that program. And the astronauts and everyone involved really made a point of saying that this wasn't just about the, the astronauts or an individual. This was really a collective effort. And I think your, your point's very well taken. It's in some ways a bit surprising um, that that is so, so, such a sort of um, essential to the way that uh, people spoke about that accomplishment. Yeah, and, and definitely a hallmark of the program for anybody who spends time learning about it is that that sense of the hugeness of it and and the, the humility in a way of, of the astronauts to really try and Say, you know, hey, <laughs> this was a, a group effort. Uh, I don't want to overpraise because 
they're much more complicated uh, humans than than that. But uh, it it is a a definite team moment. Yeah, one of my sort of. Uh favorite stories from that relates to that point was that the Apollo 11 crew, uh, when they were designing their mission patch, which every crew did, they decided to leave their last names off of their patch. And that was in large part to, to signal that this wasn't just about them. It wasn't about the three of them. This was a much larger endeavor. And it was about all the people that contributed to Apollo. And um, they also decided to write, when they wrote out Apollo 11, 11 as numerals as opposed to the English word 11, so that people in non-English speaking countries could read it more easily. And that's also a sign that they're really thinking about this in global terms. So within that mission emblem, that mission patch, it really, it speaks to the point you just made. We're on Apollo 11. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about the discussion around putting a U.S. flag on the moon? It's one of those things that I took for granted as a kid, and it wasn't until actually I went to a Smithsonian traveling exhibit uh, that we had here, uh, Destination Moon, a couple years ago. Before here, it was at in Pittsburgh, and that's where they actually designed the flagpole, and they had a whole nice exhibit about, uh, in, in that exhibit, about the discussion around whether it was appropriate, what we should do, how it uh, is impacted by national international law around claiming, because it is a very like the symbolism and and you talk about this in the book uh, concerted efforts were made to tie the astronauts and and the explorers of the age of sail uh, when it's very it's a very claiming thing you know the the Eddie Izzard you have a flag and you've planted <laughs> it so so can you talk just a little bit about some of the broader discussions around this act that that is so iconic i mean some of the greatest photos in my opinion are, are that flag there on the moon well, leading up to the first lunar landing mission, it was a highly debated question about whether or not the United States should raise a flag on the moon. And there were there were definitely people on both sides. Part of it relates to the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which codified that no country could claim ownership of the moon. And traditionally, you stick your flag in something to sort of, <laughs> you know, with a conquest, you're, you're claiming that land. And so it had already been agreed on that that wasn't something that nations could do with the moon. And the State Department and U.S. Information Agency in particular were really worried about any symbolism in the moon landing that was too heavily nationalistic in their view. And they thought that uh, a flag should not be raised on the moon. It would symbolize U.S. conquests. And this was particularly tone deaf, I guess you could say, at, the, at this moment where you have the post-colonial movement and all these newly independent nations. And, and they just saw this as going over really badly in those places. Um, and they thought that the flag on the spacecraft, that's enough. Or the flag on the spacesuits, that's enough. That's enough national symbolism. There was some suggestion that they should raise a UN flag. Now, it was really highly debated. In Congress, it was also debated, and, and people were writing in to the members of Congress saying that, you know, what their various opinions were. But in general, Americans expressed this idea that because the moon landing was funded by American taxpayers, that an American flag should be raised on the moon. So ultimately, Congress really pressured NASA into um, this decision and threatened NASA funding even. Um, and then almost immediately, NASA announced that an American flag was going to be raised on the moon. And then um, 
they they received their appropriation, but it was amended uh, with words about how an American flag and an only an American flag would be raised on the moon if it was a mission funded by U.S. taxpayers. So um, it became very crystal clear what was going to happen. But um, there was a lot of concern at that time what what it would mean, how much it would would symbolize or be a problematic symbolism for the United States. I've been fascinated personally by this discussion because I remember at the exit of that exhibit, they had a letter from Neil Armstrong basically saying, you you can infer from the letter that the person who wrote it was like, yes, we need to plant a flag. I hear there's this discussion. And Neil says, yeah, we agree. Uh, there are many of us who do, and something will happen. I just had no idea it was such a discussion. It was, and there was a lot there was a lot of discussion about the symbolism. So they even created a symbolic activities committee to to figure out what type of symbolic activities the astronauts should undertake and things like the the plaque that was left on the lun- leg of the lunar module. That was something that it's so simple, but it, so many people had their hand in making sure that it was just right. And so um, they requested feedback from Smithsonian and the Library of Congress, State Department, USIA, um, NASA, and then Nixon's speechwriters got really involved in it too. And it's it's very short, it's very simple, but the expectation was that it was very, very important. And so they were careful about the language that they used and the symbolism there. And, and the plaque depicts the two hemispheres of Earth with no political boundaries. And that's essential to, the, to what they were trying to communicate, that this wasn't political. This was about um, all humankind. And it even says it there on the plaque. They landed on the moon for all humankind, but it also includes Nixon's name. So uh, there it is, and the astronaut's name. So there's, um, you know, an, an interesting, subtle interplay be- between those different messages. Um, but it, a lot of work went into trying to figure out, you know, what symbolic activities should take place on the moon. So the raising of the American flag was part of that conversation. They also decided to send miniature flags to the moon from all the countries around the world. And then they brought them back after the mission and gave them as diplomatic gifts, uh, along with some pieces of lunar sample. Uh, and then they had a few other symbolic things as well. So um, they had objects that were um, to honor both fallen astronauts and fallen cosmonauts. Uh, and they brought a silicon disc that had messages from foreign leaders inscribed on it. They left that on the moon. And so the astronauts, when they went to the moon, they were not just, you know, on television, they were not just collecting lunar samples, they were also doing these types of activities um, to make the moon landing more inclusive. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Special thanks to those of you who support the podcast financially. And for those wondering, the Museum of Flight hit its goal for the 2021 Give Big Day which I mentioned in the last episode, which means we unlocked the $25,000 in matching funds on top of the gifts given that day. So thank you for those of you who were able to contribute to that effort. Thank you for keeping this program going. Your gifts support the podcast and the museum's other educational programs. If you'd like to become a donor, head to museumofflight.org podcast and click the yellow donate button. I mentioned in the intro that Tiesel was a returning guest, and the last time she was on, as you heard, we talked about the Apollo 11 International Diplomatic Tour. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. 
I'll also link to the episode I mentioned featuring the museum's own adjunct curator for space history, Jeff Nunn, where he and I talked about the importance and challenges of preserving new space history. I'll also include a link to more information on Teasel's upcoming virtual program, which you can attend live and ask your own questions. And I'll include links to the book Cold War Civil Rights that Teasel mentioned in the conversation. Lots of links again today. On your next visit to the Museum of Flight, make sure you take some time in our Apollo gallery to soak in some of the sights and sounds and political imagery that the era generated. As of this recording, we're continuing to operate under COVID-related guidelines, so please visit our website, museumofflight.org, before visiting to get the most up-to-date information. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, We'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>